Hi everybody, welcome to the morality of everyday things. This is part two of our episode on euthanasia, and this one we'll be talking about philosophical perspectives and approaches to the idea of euthanasia. Just as a reminder, these are sequential, so you should have listened to the previous one, but if it's been a while, euthanasia is distinct from assisted suicide. The distinction is in agency. So assisted suicide is where you choose to end your life and you are helped by, for example, a doctor, but you will typically take that action. They will just provide you the medication or, or follow your instructions. Mm -hmm. And euthanasia is where that there isn't the agency that decision is made for you. That's typically broken down into passive and active. Passive would be turning off your life support. Active would be administering a lethal drug. We're generally talking about active rather than passive, so the administering of lethal drugs. Yeah, there are some cases where passive euthanasia decisions happen in, yes. in real life and, and, and they... Yeah, they're yeah. slightly different. We missed the intro, sorry, uh, Morality of Everyday Things is a podcast about everyday philosophy. I'm Anthony. I'm Jacob. Uh, Long-time friends, work together. What else do we do? We do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we record together. We run, we run a couple of businesses, uh, travel, stasher.com, need store bags, check that out. Treepoints.green, integrate with businesses who want to integrate climate action into their business. Indeed. Well, that was just a repetition of integrating business, but whatever. It's been a while, guys. I'm in a hot podcast booth. Let's go. Yeah. In the previous episode, like I said, we defined the terms and we looked at the current state of the law regarding euthanasia and assisted suicide and countries that have uh, got more liberal laws in place for, for that to be the case. Now, in this episode, we're doing what we very typically do on this podcast. You can think of the previous episode as like one fairly big definitional and context episode. In this episode, we're looking at the philosophical arguments. So we're going to look at classic philosophers and how their approaches relate to the issue of death mm. and euthanasia and then people who have specific opinions on it as well but yep. we yeah we'll look at typical schools of thought that we yes so the most relevant ones are that we're going to discuss today are the ancient greeks mm -hmm. uh, which i suppose will heavily overlap with uh, virtue ethics because that was the norm of the time we'll also look at the classics uh, deontology kantism and consequentialism utilitarianism but then we'll also look at contractualism mm. um what we owe to each other a uh, famous example of that by uh, Scanlan. Made but popular on The Good Place. Apparently. Yeah, I mm. don't remember. I've seen The Good Place, but I don't remember the reference to Scanlan. I think Chidi is a fan. That, that faux philosophy. Oh, he's so annoying. Anyway, <laughs> um, so let's start with the origins of the word, as the Greeks often do. You've seen my Big Fat Greek Wedding, right? Mm -hmm. We went to a Big Fat Greek Wedding, oh, my we brother's did. wedding last Friday. <laughs> so um, in classic Big Fat Greek style fashion, let's let's... It's from the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> the Greek. Uh, you, um, meaning well or good. Um, in, in modern Greek, I guess, ya would be like health or wellness. What? As like yasil? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that means your health. Mm. Uh, well, that's what those words literally mean. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of derived from that. I think it's spelled different now. Um, or is it? I don't know. I think so, yeah. Um, but yeah, the word is uh, euthanasia splits into you, EU, meaning well or good, like you're saying. Yep. And thanatos. Thanatos, meaning thanatos death. means death. Yeah, Thanos is like the god of death, right? Yes. Yeah. Hades? Destroyer of worlds, maybe? Yes. I don't know. I yeah. Well, Hades is. Well, I don't know. Thanos yeah, yeah, yeah. was also the name yes. of one of Ant's cousins. Yes. Maker yeah, yeah. of websites, destroyer <laughs> of worlds, <laughs> destroyer of servers. Uh, but yes, Thanatos, meaning death. Going to classical perspectives. Plato, famously in the Republic, defends the rules for allowing someone to not be medically treated, but rather allowed to die instead. Uh, what we might now, as I said in the beginning, might consider a passive form of euthanasia. Aristotle actually defended something similarly. For both of them, the person would be a suitable candidate for euthanasia if treated and then kept alive. 
they would not have a desirable quality of life. I guess this is fairly yeah. subjective, but yeah. So. Oh, I would I would suppose in the ancient Greek virtue ethics perspective, it's probably like unable to be a soldier, <laughs> unable to be a good citizen. You may as well die. <laughs> <laughs> but this, to be fair, I, I'm, I read the Republic a long time ago, but I just don't remember this passage. This does seem to fit what most of us think about. You know, who should be a suitable person for euthanasia if you're going to allow it. I will give them the benefit of the doubt that they probably had something a little harsher than just like not being a good citizen means you don't get to live. <laughs> you don't get to do philosophy? <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> Death. <laughs> so some people have misconstrued the Greek view given the concept of the good, which is basically the idea that you should be a person who works towards the good of the society. If Plato is interpreted in this way, then it would seem to suggest that if you were not performing in such a way that contributed <laughs> to the good of society in light of your medical requirements, that therefore it would be right to withdraw medical treatment for that person, which I guess is kind of what we were just joking about, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's certainly not a view that we want to be committed to. <laughs> yeah. How funny is that? That like my familiarity with Plato is, is sufficient enough that I guessed where the notes were going. <laughs> <laughs> so John Cooper argues that this is not what is being meant. And instead, we should view the good of society as instead about a person's usefulness in society, being about their own previous expectations of themselves, and now no longer being able to fulfill their expectations. So it's it's a, like quality of life is relative to their prior lived experience. If that would be hugely diminished by continuing to receive treatment, yep. then so, that's, I mean, that's this, not good. This is the classic example of like, hey, my expectation for my life is to be able to spend time with my family and go to work and stuff. And if aggressive chemotherapy would stop me being able to do that, it's perhaps not worth doing, even if it actually would shorten my lifespan. Mm -hmm. Even if not taking it would shorten your lifespan. You mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And is that in a situation where you don't expect to like recover fully after? Or mm, that's hard, uh, hard to say. But I, I suppose in this context, what they're saying is something a bit more stringent, at mm -hmm. least in at the kind of surface level that we've kind of started to look at it. Um, yeah, because in the I, previous episode, we we did sort of make the point that certainly in law, it's enshrined that you have to be suffering from something incurable, even in the more liberal states. You want to be basically like dying or terminal or chronic mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you're young and it's a, now in the modern context, you know, it might be a crappy period, but you would return to normal. I think that that makes sense though, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because even then, let, okay, let's say, for example, in that case, you know, the example that you had there with John Cooper, you said it's about expectations. Mm -hmm. If you receive the treatment, you would return to normal, right? And yeah. certainly they wouldn't rule out like something that's going to make you feel terrible for a day. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe the period of treatment isn't that relevant compared to whether you return to your expectations. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I okay, feel that, like that's the condition because otherwise, okay, if, if what you're doing is like, you're going to have a worse quality of life, but it's just going to prolong it. I guess yep. somewhere along the lines of like the Hippocratic Oath, right? It's like, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you always want to prolong okay. life. Okay, okay. No, wait, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. Uh, uh, actually, it's a bunch of things, but that's the first one. Yeah, I think it's in the notes somewhere. We'll okay. come to that, I'm sure. Um, but no, I take it, okay, fine. In the context where you were going to die anyway. Yeah. This, this, their, their view seems to fit with that, like, okay, I care about, you know, being an active part of my family and my work and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, this would seem to coincide with that. Not like this would treat me and then cure it and then I'd live a normal life. Like, I'm going to pass either way mm. and I would rather continue to meet my expectations as a positive part of society and my life versus a negative thing. I'm not saying I necessarily fully agree with that, just trying to understand and contextualize their perspective. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could lead to some valid worries about, you know, there could be implications uh, this argument makes for, you know, the lives of like people who'd be severely disabled after treatment, for example. Yes, that's true. Or who are just generally disabled yeah, yeah um although that you know you can take the john cooper point there about expectations and say their expectations were 
different mm-hmm. before, which is which expectations are, are personal, not societal expectations. I take it. They may not be. Mm. But yeah, we might need to look at alternative philosophical theories for better assessments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a philosophical theory that we talk about in pretty much every episode is Kant's deontology. I'm, I'm not that big a fan of, of him. It's just a really nice... It's nice to engage with something that you don't necessarily always agree with. Mm. I think Kant's really convenient because you've got like... You've got the outcomes-based approach of utilitarianism yep. and other theories. The Greeks, I guess, sit somewhere in the middle. Because they're sort of mm-hmm. virtue-based. And I don't know. Actually, I find there's something quite romantic about the Greek notions mm-hmm. of ethics. Mm-hmm. Kant is just fun because he's like he's rules-based. He's fairly extreme. He has his categorical imperative, which is just a really fun framework to run ethical questions through. So Yeah, even if you don't agree with it. So Kant argues that something is a duty if it meets the categorical imperative. And likewise, it's a duty to not do something if it violates the categorical imperative. Mm -hmm. A categorical imperative is just that if you you should act only in accordance to uh, something that you could make uh, a universal law. Famously, you couldn't universalize murder because if everyone murdered everyone, then eventually you get to the point where uh, you couldn't murder anymore. You know, there'd be no people. No one could because everyone would be dead. Mm. Um, it's the same way that like, you know, you can't universalize stealing because if everyone stole from each other, um, you'd, you'd reach a point where people kind of didn't have anything. And, and also I, I think more practically, like if you universalize stealing, like it would result in basically no one owning anything because it's just going to get stolen. Which is maybe where like Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs want us to be, Ooh. apart from for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they want to own everything. Yes. Actually, that reminds me of a, a great communist joke. I have a few good communism jokes. Uh, they're, they're Soviet jokes, actually. So one is, um, I'll go with the first one. Uh, by the way, each of these episodes, I'm going to tell a joke, apparently. Uh, <laughs> a man calls the local police station and he says, Good afternoon, comrade. I have to let you know that my parrot has recently escaped. And the police sergeant is quite annoyed. And he says back to him, Listen here, sir. We're extremely busy. There's been a, a robbery and a break into someone's home recently. And someone was murdered in this town. We have no time to pursue somebody's parrot. And the guy says, oh, no, 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 I know. I'm not suggesting that you should look for the parrot. I just wanted to clarify, if anyone finds the parrot, I don't share his views. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then, uh, you know, I'm going to go for all three communist jokes. Second one, guy goes to a uh, car salesman and he says, hey, you know, I'd like to buy a car. My car recently broke down. And the Soviet car salesman says, look, Everyone wants a car. I can get you a car in two years and 11 days. Tuesday, the 5th of August. That's the soonest I can get it for you. The guy says, okay, okay, Tuesday, 5th of August. Great. Will you come in the morning or afternoon? The car salesman says, what the hell are you talking about? It's two years and 11 days away. Why do you care if it's the morning or the afternoon? And the guy says, well, the plumber is coming as well. (laughs) (laughs) And then the third joke for you. Uh, This one's more just kind of a witty view. Uh, Communist comes to America. Soviet Mm -hmm. communist comes to... I don't have issues with communism, Sovietism. Anyway, Soviet comes to America and he sees a car factory and he says, who owns this car factory? And an American says, oh, the billionaire inventor, um, Henry Ford. And the Soviet says, oh, disgusting. Um, <laughs> and then he, you know, he's walking around, he sees the parking lot and he says, oh, all these cars, who own all these cars? And he says, oh, all the people who work here. And he goes, oh, okay. And the American, <laughs> you know, comes and sees the factory in Russia, so USSR. And it's an impressive factory. And he says, wow, who, who owns this factory? And he says, this factory belongs to the people, the people of this country. Mm-hmm. And he's very smug in the American. Well, fair enough. And, you know, as they're approaching, you know, in the parking lot, there's only one car. And he says, who owns that car? And he says, oh, the factory foreman. <laughs> <laughs> Man, how did we get onto that? Um, stealing. Stealing. Communism. Property. Everyone owns everything. Everyone owns everything. That was it. And it just, yeah. The, good jokes though, huh? Nice. Um, nice little diatribe. 
Diatribe? Detour. Uh, so for Khan, back to the point, need to make a universal rule for it to work. For Khan, then it seems like euthanasia would violate the categorical imperative as a form of murder under this conception. So, it's interesting. It? I is don't know. I suppose it depends on the conditions required to... Yeah, for, for you have a duty to, to you have a duty to kill someone who oh, but then you need to treat people as means the ends not means right. Yeah, but no, but I mean, there's no greater way to treat someone as an end in themselves than to think about the dignity of their life. <laughs> that you can say than to end them. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you obviously you're treating them as ends. <laughs> no, you took it too literally. <laughs> yeah, no, that. Oh, how did I miss that? No, but I mean, like, if your if your entire consideration is their dignity mm. and ending their life, I don't know that I agree that Kant would rule it out uh, by the categorical imperative. Is the sort of logical leap here that if you universalize euthanasia, you just end up killing, killing everyone. everyone? I think only if your definition of but I don't what qualifies as when you would do it yeah. is is bad or weak. Otherwise, I think it actually totally makes sense. Because it's if it's like you have a, you have a duty to end someone's life, then it, when and then you just need to phrase it very carefully so that it doesn't mean all the time. Because because under Kant's um, uh, you like, can say something like when someone has like severely diminished quality of life because that would mean like your friend's having a bad day and it's like pow <laughs> <laughs> okay um, uh, because uh, does yeah it, it isn't Kant's theory though I think it, it is the counter that, that context should never matter in the case of stuff that you're trying to universalize mm. and is, is that where this falls down because something like don't tell lies stroke be honest mm. should apply all the time yeah but I mean you can just okay you can and, just, and then he famously does that with you, the could just say, you could just say something like I take your point so the problem is how do you give a specific enough phrasing that doesn't mean that universalized you just kill everyone yeah um, well, I, I, to be okay. fair now that I've said that out loud I actually think it's possible right you could you could surely universalize that it's justified to kill someone with dignity when they're suffering past a certain like tolerable level or I don't know I, yeah I, but what's I, a tolerable level yeah there's more definitions that come into it but I don't yeah. think it necessarily devolves okay. to like I don't think it necessarily yeah I don't think it necessarily like equates to murder what about assisted suicide so Kant personally it seems was very anti-suicide and murder because you're failing to recognize the rational status of either yourself or other beings mm. what does that mean for Kant a rational being is one who is capable of moral deliberation given that rational beings determine the categorical imperative that is you will the moral law and through this you adhere to it you must then recognize your own status as a rational being. You must also recognize the rational status of others. He says that basically killing yourself is to fail to recognize yourself as a rational being. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, okay, you can engage with his principles without necessarily agreeing with like every part of his definition. Or his interpretation. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, I, I, it certainly is a very old fashioned and I think religiously influenced perspective. You've just set up a nonsense definition that just defines the desire to commit suicide out of rational beings and don't get me wrong is he saying it's irrational well this basically i mean actually what he's saying is kind of the logic that you use when a 20 something who's in a bad place mm. says i want to commit suicide and you say you're just not in a sound rational place right now right and, and <laughs> there's like, so much to live for <laughs> yeah and like don't get me wrong i'm using that example because i generally agree with that maybe there's too much stigma maybe some people legitimately just are unhappy and don't want to live and maybe that shouldn't be a problem i don't know i think that's kind of like the definition of mentally ill because mm. we make the definition of mentally ill anyway mm -hmm. whilst that is true and difficult and there's a lot of gray area to talk about there's plenty of not gray area mm. right there's plenty of people you know in the case of assisted suicide are saying i am really suffering i'm going to die soon anyway it's really not unreasonable i'm rational this is in fact a very rational decision yeah right? and there's a whole thing about kant and the maxim of self-love and i feel like 
that's actually an extremely like self-compassionate decision that you can make. Yeah. You know? Or maybe compassionate for others. Yeah. Like well, I, it's, it's the point I made at the end of the last episode, but I, I, I stand by the fact that I think it seems much more positive to be able to determine the sort of yeah. time and setting of your own death and have loved ones with you yeah. and, and pre- also preemptively avoid suffering. I mean, if, if self-love is, if there's a maximum self-love and moral acts are really those which are done for duty, I mean, you, you could see that you, for example, have a duty to not be a burden on others. Mm. And I don't mean that as in just financially, although that could also be relevant. I also mean emotionally, because mm. that could be a driver. If it's like, I'm really suffering and my suffering is suffering for those I care about. Mm-hmm. That could be a driver of, of the decision. Interesting. I, I think we'd kind of approached in the notes as a, a hard no from Kant, but I think we actually think it's a little bit more mixed. He himself might have taken that view, but I think you could use his framework to come to a more moderated conclusion. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, the maxim, so the maxim of assist someone with their suicide upon their request, that can definitely be universalized without some sort of ridiculous end status, yeah. right? Because it's dependent on someone requesting it. Mm-hmm. There might be some gray cases there that that universal law kind of maybe we're not that comfortable with, but mm. which is basically those people where we'd say, oh, but that person wasn't in a fit state to make that decision. So we shouldn't have had that. Oh, law. this isn't what you wanted for your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so that's a bit of a mixed one, but an interesting perspective. Let's look at another classic case. So we've often talked about utilitarianism in previous episodes. Yeah, we've talked about utilitarianism before in many, in many other episodes. Given that it's concerned with maximizing welfare, it does seem that if a person is suffering so much that their life is not worth living, that it's the morally better thing to do to allow them to undergo euthanasia. Indeed, the person's family might feel relief for the person, especially knowing they have died with dignity. This is commonly what is said from family and friends who accompany their loved ones to Dignitas, that though it's sad, they felt a sense of calm and closure. According to Mill, John Stuart Mill, famous utilitarian, the rule utilitarian, yeah, a heuristic, you follow rules, uh, the harm principle means that we are only justified in preventing someone from doing something if they will bring harm to others. That's the harm principle, actually, in a sentence. Not to um, themselves. Yeah, not to themselves. I, I, I can ban you from smoking because of secondhand smoke, but I can't ban you from smoking because of the impact on you. That That's your decision mm-hmm. for you to make. So the outcome is you have to smoke outside. So by the harm principle, it seems that Euthanasia is just about an individual's rights and their right to choose when they die. And this seems further to support the idea that it is up to the individual to choose. Yeah, the only counter you can make to that against that utilitarian argument, which otherwise seems pretty sound, what is the impact of a person's choosing to die on other people? Yeah, but it's a bit of a slippery slope and it sets a bad precedent, right? It's better generally for the welfare of more people that euthanasia remain illegal. Wait, what? Ah, okay. So if, I'd alluded this to a couple of times, right? So what if like legalizing euthanasia kind of destigmatizes death and leads to this precedent that it's okay and it becomes a little more extreme Mm. and then we reach this point where people who basically are uh, you know say depressed in their 20s have the ability to say i would like to commit suicide and and legally pursue that Mm -hmm. i don't have a clear enough view on whether i think that's bad or not but i could see that a lot of people would say that's bad and see that as a kind of outcome slippery slope and it would be better to just keep euthanasia illegal to avoid that happening yeah and i suppose the the sort of counter argument then as you say is that if you extend this to someone i mean even if you if you extend it to someone who's terminally ill and suffering perhaps they're they've been financially supporting people or i don't know perhaps there's cases where their death actually does more than an emotional harm to people i mean yeah. it's still gonna emotionally make people suffer when they die here's a really good example let's say that that person has some forms of insurance or for whatever contractual reason say they're vesting some equity or something <laughs> and by dying early they don't hit that so they're hurting other people right mm. uh, but I, I think the main one would be like what if it invalidates your insurance mm-hmm. right life insurance right yeah that would be, i imagine i yeah. don't know yeah i would imagine that is true quite interesting that'd be, yeah that'd be a great example of like uh you're actually 
are you harming others or just not doing the benefit? There's a difference between hurting and not doing a plus, right? <laughs> Maybe it depends on their expectations. Yeah. <laughs> so then the question becomes, what is better and maximizes the most welfare? And you want to say that in an individual case basis, that's active utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. And you also want to say that as a general rule, having it illegal or legal, having it easily accessible or not easily accessible. Uh, my leaning is that it's one of those things that people are worried about the regulation in gray cases. Uh, I'm saying this as someone who spoken about this last episode. Probably like disproportionate when you're actually in those situations, it probably feels a lot clearer. Yeah, I could imagine that being the case. And I think that's one of the nice things about the way the law evolves is that, you know, cases will evolve where there are these sort of tricky nuances. There are things to balance that aren't obvious and case law sets precedents and, and, and we develop better rules and regulations and develop better understandings of how to approach these issues. Um, I mean, one of the things, you know, we, we've talked a few times about like, what if someone's young unhappy um probably like clinically mentally ill wants to choose to die you could surely devise some kind of process that requires like many stages of consent like interview with sort of people possibly even you know consent from relevant family members or if not consent like you know for for them to be involved in the process you can you can make it more than just like someone's like hey i'm gonna die and I like makes a quick decision do you get where i'm going with that you know yeah you can devise reasonable like you can that actually policy like, you know, it, it needs the doctor's approval yeah it it's not going to be a, a family members a approval. quick decision it's going to yeah. be something that sort of go and actually maybe maybe the, the the journey of going through that process is something that actually makes people evaluate the decision that's yep. that's probably something you'd integrate yeah, into yeah. the process another perspective that we mentioned uh before we wrap up um, is a wild card to this one, uh, contractualism. So yeah, um, we've not talked about that before, I don't think, on this podcast. So no, no, no. Uh, contractual welcome, contractualism. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, T.M. Scanlon. Uh, proposed by him, T.M. Scanlon, in his book, What We Owe to Each Other. Um, as we mentioned in the intro, it was made popular uh, in The Good Place. Uh, it's the idea that what is moral is grounded in, very literally, what we owe to other people. Uh, that is, can I justify my actions to others? So this theory hinges on the idea of reasonable rejection. For example, if someone proposes a principle, then if any person could reasonably reject that principle, then it shouldn't be performed. It must be a rejection that's deemed reasonable. That's that's key to the definition. Funny example in the notes is like, if a child is drowning and asked to be saved and you have the buoyancy aid, it's no harm or risk to yourself, but you <laughs> reject like the, uh, the, the, the request to, to throw the aid because you're too lazy. Yeah. Whereas, say, for example, that would be unreasonable. Yeah. Whereas we're giving this fairly short shrift. I don't know enough about it. Not because we think it's bad or anything, just because it's it's just a, a we're small section where we're less yeah. familiar. But I would say I really don't like these sort of theories where, you know, it hinges on the semantics of the term reasonable. Mm. Right. So you might say that, hey, not saving that person is reasonable if you say it's a risk to my life. To, mm -hmm. which is actually generally lifeguarding rules. It's like never go and try and save someone if there's a meaningful risk to you because then you just risk two people dying. Are you if they're in the jaws of a shark? Yes, or in a riptide that's not swimoutable. Uh, you can't more swim out of, Yeah, <laughs> in the jaws of a shark. Yeah, is, I'll just swim in. Um, <laughs> but another good example is Good Samaritanism, mm -hmm. which is a moral theory that like you have a duty to help when the cost is reasonably low to you. It's a line drawing argument. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that sort of perspective. But I mean, okay, it's basically saying you can determine what's moral. Anyone can propose anything as a principle. And if you can't reasonably reject it, it stands. Mm -hmm. Which sounds a ridiculously simple way of determining what we owe each other. And it is, I guess, on an act basis you can do it. But it's more like a test of a proposed rule than a way of forming the rules, mm. which I find dissatisfying. <clears throat> and yeah. like I said, highly semantic. 
So how would it apply to the case of euthanasia? Again, this is kind of like the Kant argument. If you articulate the principle specifically enough, it's, it's surely simple, right? Like if someone who is in a difficult situation says like, I propose I should be able to end my life or, mm -hmm. or I propose that you should help me end my life because I am miserable. You rejecting that because it's like, I find this- Uncomfortable. Yeah, I find this very uncomfortable would be reasonable. But, you know, there's people who don't feel that way. You know, there's lots of doctors who are comfortable dealing with death. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see... Could you not make the case that my feeling uncomfortable isn't reasonable? Yeah, this comes back to the semantics of like what's reasonable. Mm. And and is, is it reasonable because of like a threshold or is it reasonable because of a comparative difference between my suffering and your suffering in that case? Like, mm. so, so, because that was, that's basically the argument of like, if I'm too lazy to throw a boy to a drowning child, I think the reason that we consider that unreasonable is because of the comparative difference in those sufferings, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah, I guess a clear example I talked about before was murder. So if I'm like, I propose that I murder you on our 10th anniversary. Yeah. Throw back to that joke. Uh, and mine, mine is my reasonable rejection would be like, I don't want you to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> You're always so unreasonable. And this is why. This is why I'm going for you. <laughs> but the relative suffering, you'd save me a lot of suffering in life. Ultimately, yeah. life is pain. <laughs> no, actually, you know, this is a, such a lame, this is like a live, laugh, love kind of trite aphorism, but I really like the expression, pain is guaranteed, suffering is optional. Mm, it's, a, nice. it's a nice kind of stoic thought. Where does that come from? Is it stoic? I don't, that, it's probably some stoic Instagram account or some shit like that, right? <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true. Um, Seneca so, on Pinterest. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's not a blank, it's, as, uh, it's not as strong a no as maybe Kant's was like, because Kant, you're trying to propose a universal rule. Mm. This one is like, you can think of reasonable rejections and certainly anyone who's asking for assisted suicide or has, you know, say that they were able to compass menti, argue why you should do euthanasia. And in some people's cases, they've literally written the conditions mm -hmm. for that. It's hard to disagree with those requirements. Mm. And maybe you're uncomfortable, but there will definitely be people who are comfortable enacting that, including. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Loved ones. Okay, that was our last uh, theory to discuss. Let's wrap them up quickly. Which one do you align with best and um, what are your thoughts? Which one do I align with most? I generally align with utilitarianism. I like elements of contractualism. It's an interesting perspective on generally like mm. sense checking any proposal. But like I, I discussed just then like, I don't like reasonable semantics, the semantics of what's reasonable or not. I don't like the fact that it's for checking rules rather than creating rules. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I lean towards utilitarianism. I think Kantianism not that relevant or interesting here. The Greek's kind of interesting, but also dangerously justifies like killing bad citizens, <laughs> you know, loose definitions. And ultimately, I feel like the way that you ultimately determine the right answer in the Greek context ends up being utilitarianism in disguise. Yeah. No, I completely agree with all that. That seems pretty fair to me. I like the utilitarian perspective as I think it allows you to be fairly case by case, which I think particularly with reference to the previous episode is kind of where we're at with euthanasia right now. It, it, given the fact that the laws are evolving across different countries, I think you need to be sort of taking that approach because that's how we'll develop towards hopefully laws that make this uh, better for people concerned. So guys, that is the end of episode two on our series on euthanasia, assisted suicide and death. We'll be back next episode with the full-on pros and cons discussion. So this will be looking at policies, outcomes, what are beyond the sort of philosophical frameworks that we've introduced here, what are the sort of more practical elements to the debate? Thanks, guys.